0: How's doing everybody, uh, thanks for joining us for the launch of issue two of Fingerpost. Uh, my name is Jared Dean, and I work for Hollywell Trust, and we have revived Fingerpost as one of our projects with the support of a community Relations council. And this second issue looks at the issue of the shared society and features eight different articles. So today, we hope to be hearing from Colin Cavanaugh and George O'Kane, who are going to talk about shared and integrated education, and then. Later, we hope to be joined by Lillian Sinoy-Barr They talk about the Black and Minority Ethnic Communities view on shaping a shared island. And finally, we'll hear from Linda Irvine They talk about Irish as a shared language. So first up, we have Colm Kevna. So Colm, thank you for the, the article that you did and um, enjoyed the read but I was really frustrated by the frustrated attempts at reforming our uh, education system here. So you've been involved in championing shared and integrated education for quite a while. Why do you think there's such a reluctance? they they change things uh, on a quicker pace?
1: Well, uh, I think, first of all, there's what I call the inertia of the status quo, just because that's the way things are. Mm. Um, and so they, they kind of remain. The background is that... Uh, It's almost 200 years since the government started to fund a national school system, what they call the National Schools, still in the Republic, and they're dotted around the island, small schools all over the place. This was based on a series of of government reports going back uh, in the early 1800s and the early 1820s, and even before the Act of Union to the old Irish Parliament. And uh, anyway, they they proposed a system whereby the government would subsidise the building of school buildings and it would uh, subsidize the, the payment of teachers. And this was 40 years before they even started to do a similar thing in England. And so the government then went to the three main churches to talk about it. Uh, the Catholic church said, sorry, I should explain. They were going to be Christian, but completely non-denominational. Absolutely nobody was allowed to try to proselytize anybody else. The textbooks were going to be checked by a board of education to make sure that they were multi-denominational. and." Um, that clergy from the church of any particular children would come in on one or two days a week to to talk to their own children separately for faith development. Mm. But the ordinary three hours were going to be completely uh, non-denominational. So they they spoke to the three churches. The Catholic church said, majority of the bishops said, yeah, that's all right, we'll go along with that. The Church of Ireland, which is still the established church, said that they didn't like it. And it's hard for us to think back to but as the established church, education was something that churches did. And they said that they wanted to run it, otherwise, they would uh, continue to run their own Church of Ireland schools. And the government said, no, we're going to run this. And then the, the third group was the Presbyterian Church. And the Presbyterian Church always had, uh, from the very earliest days, it was one of the reasons that my some people say that Scotland had the first adult literacy in Europe, um, because every presbytery should have a school where people would be able to learn to read and write and to read the Bible. So Presbyterians objected to the fact that for several days a week they would not be allowed to read the Bible in class. Uh, the, some of the some of the more fundamentalist uh, Presbyterians held monster meetings and criticised the new system, etc. Anyway, so the Church of Ireland children continued to go to the Church of Ireland school. The Presbyterians eventually negotiated what were in effect Presbyterian schools, and there was nobody left to go to school with the Catholics. That's actually how we got Catholic schools. They were the only church that was. had agreed to go into the the, the non-denominational system. Uh, That was 1831, Uh, so by about 1840 we had this denominational education steadily in place. 1923, when the Unionist government was set up in Northern Ireland, um, the First Minister for Education, Lord Londonderry, brought a bill through Stormont, or it was before Stormont existed actually, but brought it through the Northern Ireland Parliament saying that he wanted to set up a, a secular school system for everybody, and teachers, you would, people employ, schools employing teachers would not be allowed to discriminate on the basis of religion and there would not be denominational uh, faith during the school day. But only two years later, a group of uh, people from the Presbyterian Church, Church of Ireland Methodist uh, Church, uh, lobbied the government and had those two items changed uh, so that they could discriminate on the, on the employment of teachers and schools could be uh, Protestant denominational. Uh, So the Catholic school system had never come into that after 1922 anyway. So the the separate school system, the divided school system remained in place. And then in 1974, in the first power-sharing executive that was uh, with Brian Faulkner, uh, unionist uh, Jerry Fitt, STLP, as the deputy first minister or chief executive, I think he was called, and um, the Alliance Party, they had in their program for government what they called shared schools, meaning integrated schools, uh, uh, but it only lasted, as everybody knows, for five months, and then uh, the ultra worker council, strike had collapsed. So then it was in 1981 that, that a group of parents in uh, North Down, Catholic and Protestant parents, uh, said that if the churches weren't going to create a, a united school system and the government wasn't going to, the Department of Education wasn't going to, parents would do it themselves. And so without any funding from government, in fact in the face of some hostility from various sources, they opened Lagan College in 1981, which is interesting because that was parent power doing it, but it was also exactly 150 years after the government had tried to do that very same thing that uh, it came in. And so from that one school in 1981, there are now 65 integrated schools uh, across Northern Ireland. There'll, There'll soon be more integrated schools than there are grammar schools in Northern Ireland. So that's that's a fairly short version of how we got the system we have today.
0: Yeah. Do, do you think we'll ever get this stage where we'll have like a fully integrated system, you know where we've, we've done away with secondary and grammar and integrated and we just have one system. And what would need to take foot? There
1: are two different issues there. And yeah. the former Minister for Education in Northern Ireland, Lord Melcht said there were two problems with uh, the education system in Northern Ireland, and that was, one was the segregation into Catholics and Protestants, and the other one was the, the grammar school situation, uh, which had been dropped in England, pretty much. Um, and he said, you will solve the segregation one before you will solve the grammar school one in Northern Ireland. So uh, we should keep those two issues separate. Um, I can only say that when uh, a certain Eamon Dean and I made a presentation to the, what was then, the Londonderry City Council uh, in 1977, when it was in temporary port cabins on Limavady Road because the Guildhall had been bombed. And we, we we suggested that the City Council should uh, endorse the theory of integrated education. This was before Lagan College even opened. Mm. And uh, a majority of the councillors were in favor of it. And the following Derry Journal editorial, so this is 1977, excoriated councillors who hadn't defended Catholic schools and severely criticised myself and Mr. Dean for the claptrap that we were going on with these self-appointed people. Um, so that was 1977. 2019, the editorial in the Daily Journal said we should all be working in the same places, we should go in the same leisure place, we should go to the same schools, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that, to me, is the is the change in public opinion. And also, the integrated education movement has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize several times, and uh, it was nominated for the 2020 prize. and In November, the Derry-Straban Council very strongly and very warmly supported integrated education. Nobody would disagree with it at all and Mm -hmm. passed a motion of congratulations. And and that was followed a couple of weeks later by Belfast City Council, again doing uh, a a very strong uh, resolution of congratulations, but also inviting the Council for Integrated Education into a couple of Belfast City Council uh, committees so that, they, so that their input about schools was involved in the in the future of Belfast as well. So public opinion is changing, is the simple answer to your question. That's why I can see it changing.
0: Yeah. Do you think the class still remains an issue, the, the change in the education system here? I'm just looking at the recent debacle about the transfer test and stuff, and that seemed to be very much a class division. Do you still see that as having a role?
1: Well... Um, the eleven plus is very good for the people who pass it, but it's a very high price that society pays for it. I think it's a, I think it's a bad idea. Um, but yes, it's the people who, it, it's a self perpetuating thing basically that 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 the people who benefit by it want to keep it in place, mm. and um, it's it's just bad for the whole of society. It class might be too sharp a word to put on it, but it's certainly the the people who benefit by it. Um, who are largely kind of the less disadvantaged, more middle class people uh, want to keep it.
0: Okay. And the finances column that you've outlined in your article are frightening, um, where it costs, you reckon, about 57 million pound a year to maintain the divided system that we have?
1: Yeah, well, well, I I don't estimate this. There were were two professional estimates uh, commissioned by government in 2007, uh, Deloitte's consultant um, uh, did a report commissioned by the Northern Ireland office, and Deloitte, as far as I know, employs about three hundred thousand people around the world. They do not write stupid reports, but they reckoned uh, that the cost of division in Northern Ireland, as a whole, was somewhere between half a billion and a billion and a half pounds every year. And then, uh, in 2016, the Northern Ireland executive sorry, the first one was done under direct rule, okay. In, in 2016, the Northern Ireland Executive commissioned the Ulster University Economic Policy Center to do another report. And they reckoned that the overall cost was much smaller, they said about 800, 000, 800 million pounds a year. Um, but the interesting thing is that both of them, when when they broke it down into different departments, both reports, so by professional economists, reckoned that the additional cost in Northern Ireland of having a divided system was in the upper 50 millions a year. Uh, And so if you take a a median figure between the two that they give, Mm. it was 57,237,900 pounds every year. Now that's the median, could be much less, could be much more. But then, so it's about a million pounds a week that we're paying for the privilege of having a divided system at the same time as over a six year period we, the government earmarked or allocated or spent £285 million pounds to pay for shared education and contact between the two separate systems. So, I mean, it's the economics of the madhouse, really. Yeah. It's costing us more to keep people separate, and then we're paying additional money. I don't know where that fits into the overall £57 million, but we're paying money then to get the two separate systems to have contact with each other. It's just so if you don't want to do it for reconciliation reasons, maybe you want to do it for financial reasons. But the the government, the the, the Secretary of State commissioned the consultative group of the past and uh, they came up with a whole series of how we should do to tackle the past and and be able to move on. And there were eight people on it. And there were, there were, well, Lord Eames, Bishop Eames was the co chair, and Dennis Bradley, former Catholic Mm -hmm. priest. Um, but you also had uh, uh, at least one or two ministers, a professor of theology, the principal of a Catholic primary school, etc. So they were not against faith or against the churches. It's really important to say that. But they said in that report, the reality that reconciliation may never be achieved if our continu- children continue to attend separated schools. So this is not just people who want to do social engineering. This is people who are I- involved in, in faith and in, in religion in uh, education, saying that there may never be reconciliation unless we have a a united school system. It doesn't matter who manages it, who runs it, what it's called. Uh, In fact, one of the things that I'm involved in at the moment, I'm I'm editing a new edition of, uh, on behalf of the Northern Ireland Council for Integrated Education. The first ever international directory of joint Catholic Protestant church schools was published Uh, in 2007 by the Foyle Trust for Integrated Education, Derry Day, And uh, a new edition is coming out. So the 45 uh, institutions around the world, which are run uh, as joint Protestant, uh, Roman Catholic schools or colleges, largely uh, Anglican, so Church of Ireland and Roman Catholic, Um, and uh, that new edition of that, giving the details of each of the schools, the principal, how to contact, et cetera, and their history Will be uh, published. I would
0: hope by NICE by Easter. I think is the target date. I'm ready to go to the printers very shortly. Dead on. can really look forward to that. Look, thank you for that short and sweet okay. conversation. Um, I hope everybody enjoys your article on the site fingerpost.ie. <laughs> I'm, I'm go- We're going to invite uh, George O'Kane up now, um, who's going to cool. talk about shared education, but from a slightly different perspective as well. Hello, so, Georgia. How's the form?
2: Grand. Hurry. Right.
0: Dead on. Dead on. So Georgia, a few quick questions for you. So you're writing an article on each of the issues um, that we're looking at through fingerpost over the next over the next five or six issues, um, and like Colin, you looked at shared education, but you looked at it from a lot more of a personal perspective.
2: Yeah, um, Colin's much better qualified to talk about the uh, institutional and economic changes and implications that need to happen in terms of shared education. So. I just looked more at um, what could have been in terms of educating the first post-Good Friday Agreement uh, generation.
0: Right. And so I find that really interesting, the perspective that you brought that around um, keeping children apart at education is delaying peace. Can you tell us a wee bit more about that?
2: Yeah, so if you put it simply, basically, ignorance breeds fear. So when we're keeping uh, our children apart, we're reinforcing this narrative of us and them And that then seeps into society at large as these children enter into adulthood. So if you look at the academic evidence, it suggests and it um, proves that integrated education leads to mutual understanding and contributes to a broader social transformation uh, and that in turn leads to a more accepting and diverse shared community. So the longer in Northern Ireland we allow our education system to remain segregated, the more entrenched that tradition is going to become and then the greater the risk that we return to violence is our children don't learn um, how to live together.
0: Okay. Your article you also touch on, there's a few huge issues coming at us down the line, things that we just can't avoid anymore, like climate change, coming out of a pandemic, a really poor economy, that type of stuff. And you reckon that that's going to be held back by us sustaining division here? Yeah. um, The way I see it is
2: there's a lot of, really overpowering issues which need to be dealt with, which are being overshadowed continuously by the constitutional argument and the political reliance on green and orange green and orange narratives. Uh, my MA thesis was on feminism in Northern Ireland and all the grassroots activists I spoke to all had the same experience of going, there's great grassroots movement, but once you start hitting the political level, it becomes, mm, we've got bigger issues to deal with. And then by bigger, bigger issues, they mean the constitutional question. Um, So that's still persistent at the moment, and even if you think back to the time of the Good Friday Agreement, if people like the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition hadn't stepped in, women wouldn't have been talked about because the constitutional question was the biggest issue on the table. So that's been persistent for a number of years, and in terms of the challenges that are coming in the future, they're far greater than those I've listed in the article. And just to pick up on one of the other pieces in the issue, the piece, which talks about the Black and ethnic minority communities, Uh, In terms of things like where non-Christian migrants are coming to Northern Ireland at the minute and also the refugee crisis, the focus on an educational system, which focuses on two Christian educations, uh, isn't preparing our children for the more diverse community, which is growing here.
0: Okay, so as a member of the Good Friday Agreement generation, then you think this is going to sustain and the future generations as well, that things aren't going to have changed with regards to education anyway here for a while?
2: I don't know. I'm not entirely without hope because um, I'm not the only one I've met plenty at university who are entirely frustrated with the system we have at the moment and just are looking for a way to take a different step. But then also you come across those who are the same age as me and are spouting the same arguments as the people who are currently in Stormont and they can't seem to see an ordinary political system which isn't constructed upon a constitutional question. So I do really hope in the next few years that change will take place in on many issues uh, at the political level, particularly in regards to education, because simply, the longer we allow this divide to weigh upon our children, the further they'll have to carry it into future generations.
0: Hmm. Brilliant. Georgia, thank you. Thanks for your insight. Enjoyed your article again. Um, Mm -hmm. Looking forward to hearing what you have to say about community relations and the arts. (laughs)
2: Oh, not my topic, really.
0: Ah, sure, you'll find something. Brilliant. So uh, you mentioned there Lillian's writing an article. I'm have got get Lillian coming up now. So Georgia, thank you very much. Hey, Lillian. There you go. Happy days. There
3: this we are now.
0: Thanks for coming along. So Lillian. <laughs> I,
3: I, I don't know what's happened
0: there. The first thing yeah. to point out is the suspected arson attack on the Belfast Multicultural Association last night, it's, our thoughts go out to them. And it's a, a shocking thing. If it does an arson attack, how does that make you feel As someone who, it runs a very similar organization based in Derry.
3: You know, uh, the truth is the last few months has been quite hard for our community. And it is not the first attack, by the way, for the Belfast Multicultural uh, Organization. In uh, November, from October, November, December there, we were dealing with a lot of hate crime attacks within that community and mm. we raise this concerns the police we raise it with uh, our political leaders but I think the fact that it wasn't taken at face value the urgency of addressing that issue was not taken at the uh, agency resulted to this arson. and we have no doubt that this is an assault attack it is a hate crime attack for that community mm. it's been going on a lot and the police are aware of it and it's quite heartbreaking and and shocking that it it has been allowed to get to that point, and my heart goes to all the volunteers there. I know them very well. We talk with them on a daily basis, and last night none of us slept, just mm. discussing about it and talking. And it's 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 quite uh, it is a constant constant emotional battle for us. You know, today it is them. In Dublin, it was a Black man who is 27 years old, shot outside uh, his family home. We never get a break as a community mm. here, and it's it's heartbreaking.
0: Okay. To touch on your article, because obviously the themes are, are, are very much the same, um, you try and focus on members of the Black minority ethnic community having a real say and trying to shape the future here. How difficult is that when everything in this place is designed for the To traditional communities, for want of a better term.
3: Yeah, I think I started uh, in my article. I did reflect on what happened last year, and the the reality is that everything that is happening is because the voices of minority ethnic people have been ignored. You know, we don't have a seat at the table, Mm. and there are a lot of growing concerns. And uh, let's not be delusional. You know, there's growing inequalities, no doubt about that. But the fact that that community has been completely ignored, the othering of our community is the ones that is making such difficult challenges. We are going through a reality for all of us. There's a lot of tension increasing along many divides and there's a lot of competitions on resources, but our, We are are very worried and concerned that for the future in our community, the inequalities, that racial discrimination that continues to affect our community. These gender issues that continue economic and that climate change, it is something that we all share. But for me, I find myself more worried about the possible death of truth and facts, the consequences of the death of empathy, because facts, truth, and empathy are central to how we understand and deal with all these challenges that we are facing within our society, where you don't see that kindness and acceptance of people from minority ethnic communities being extended to us. And that that goes back to all the I wouldn't call it ignorance because I don't believe in 2020 or 2021 right now, people in the Western world don't understand the challenges that minority people are going through and uh, whenever we come to the Western world. The ignorance of our history The fact that we come from, you know, our community, we come from countries that were colonized by the British, by the French, by the Germans, this history is within our society, people should be knowing that the Mm. fact that our education is not recognized while our curriculums were developed by the colonial masters, you know, these are things that have completely been ignored because our community is seen as an inferior community and there's a superior community for them. And unless we address these issues now our children and grandchildren are going to grow in a society that is continually divided within race.
0: You talk about truth and facts and inequalities and empathy and things. What normally backs that up is law and law backed by rights. Um, Do you have a fear about the rights of the people that you work with and support, especially now as a result of Brexit kicking in?
3: Absolutely. You know, if you look at the legislations that we have, they are very, very weak. Look at um, it's only recently that we got a hate crime recommendations and those recommendations, we don't know if they will ever be implemented. Northern Ireland is the only part of the United Kingdom that the race legislation is still outdated. We are catching up. From England, when they are actually updating their own right now, to so that they can uh, it can reflect the diversity of society. We haven't touched our race legislation since nineteen ninety eight. We are dealing. We have a legislation that was developed in nineteen sixty five. You know if that is what we still have. So we are, Northern Ireland is catching up in race issues, and I'm not buying the uh, the. You know, this idea that Northern Ireland is a troubled nation, you know, because of the troubles, we are only dealing with a wounded community. Northern Ireland is not unique because every country in the world has experienced conflict. The reality is Northern Ireland has so many tribes. The first Black people who came to Derry came in the 1970s. You know, the two, two Ethiopians who came, I think three Ethiopians that came with a boat. One person should show that diversity is going to grow within the society that they have come in, and that should immediately raise an alarm that we need to look at the policies that we have so that we can change them to reflect the diversity that we um, Every one of us, every single human being is entitled to protection through law. Every single uh, human being deserves to see someone who look like them in positions of influence. But unfortunately within this country, we don't have that. We are still um, living in the green and orange communities where we don't see um, the role that other communities who have come to live within us can play in building this society or changing it to a better. There's no place for us in every aspect of, of community life. And I would like to say, you know, change depends on our actions and our attitudes, the things we teach our children. And if we make an effort, no matter how hard it is, laws can be passed and consciousness can be restored and co- consensus can be built. But there's the lack of willingness from the leadership to be able to build that consensus, to develop those laws that can protect minorities within our society. And if we put that effort, we can make sure for me that a shared community benefits everyone within our society, not just some. Mm -hmm. And that has to be done together because together we can raise the level of mutual trust and resources can be shared within the society.
0: Okay. Last question for you, Lynn, you talk about taking an all-island approach Did ensuring that people are integrated within society is really important. Is that simply because here is so divided that, or is it just this is such a small place, this is such a small island that just needs done on an all-island basis?
3: I think I'm looking at the fact that the border only exists for minority ethnic communities. That is the only border that exists here because people from minority ethnic communities, depending on your own uh, passport, you get the right because of the passport that you're holding to access the island. And there is no border for others, you know, unless Brexit really, Brexit has created a border for Uh, not for human beings, but for food, you know, for trades, for, for other things, but not for human beings. That equality of opportunities we don't have it as a community. And getting that all island approach for me is looking at how we can share our resources within the island to benefit everyone within our society. When we are now, since Brexit, we're really talking about a shared island or a new island that will benefit everyone that lives here. That conversation cannot be had only between Green and orange, I think we need to realize that statistics of 2010, not now, shows that there's at least 600,000 people who are not born in Ireland or the, uh, in the Republic of Ireland or in the north of Ireland. 600,000, that's a quarter million people 10 years ago. I'm interested to see the statistics from now, you know, 10 years later to see how many we are. And it's also a reality for us that we don't really get counted properly because we don't come forward as a community to be counted. So I know we are more than what statistics are talking about. That's a big chunk of people who can change the dynamics of this community. And our voices do matters and representation do matters. And I just hope that when these conversations are being had, that people will realize that we do, genuinely do hold the balance of power and we do, and we will now become more active in these conversations. We're knocking doors all the time, but we get pushed back. So I hope that realisation will come particularly now that all these inequalities have been brought to the public agenda.
0: Brilliant. Lalit, thank you very much and thank you for the article. Um, Really interesting insight there. So now it's time for our final guest uh, for a conversation and our final guest is Linda Irvine and Linda works for the Tourist Project and Linda is going to has written an article about language and in particular the Irish language and how it is actually a shared language and doesn't belong to any one community. How's it Linda?
4: Yeah, no, it's good. Thank
0: you. Good stuff. Linda, tell us a wee bit more about the the Tourist Project.
4: Okay, well, we started back, basically it started this time 10 years ago in 2011 and it started with a six-week taster. I was part of a women's group um, on East Belfast Mission and Short Strand Women's Community Centre and we just did a little introduction to the Irish language. I took on it, started going to classes over in Road, and because my husband happened to be the leader of the Progressive Unionist Party at the time, then a a local journalist got the hold of the story and ended up in a, a couple of newspapers. And I mentioned East Belfast Mission in the interview. They were then approached by people you know from the, the local area who said we would like to learn Irish we want to go to this class and as I say, there was no class it had been a six-week taster six months before so they approached me and we started up a, a small class and uh, and that, that's basically what kicked it off
0: brilliant and what's it take up in like sense?
4: Massive massive I mean year on year it just grows and grows last year was our our biggest when 270 people enrolled um obviously we're online now and we didn't advertise this year and numbers are still quite massive and we didn't um we didn't advertise because we I suppose we want to keep um the local flavour of the of the classes and and um, people who can travel to us because when things return to normal, we want to have classes full of people who will actually physically come and support us, not just yeah. online support, you know. But um no, that it's it's a massive number of people. Um, The the new Total Beginners class that started on Wednesday there, there's almost 40 people in it alone.
0: Brilliant. That's great. Have you seen, you must have seen obviously, how you can break down barriers using the Aries language, particularly within, if you like, for want of a better definition, the Protestant Unionist Loyalist community?
4: Very much. Because when we did start, um, I think it was very important to us that we weren't going to be the kind of Protestant version of the Irish language. Mm. You know, we wanted to take our place within the Irish language sector. We didn't want to be something separate. Um, we are, I suppose, slightly different because if you go to most Irish classes, the majority of people will be from the Nicest community and the minority from the Unionist community, and we've just suppose, turned that on its head. We're the other way around. But we always from the word go, we encouraged, not just encouraged, but physically took people over to West Belfast, over to Culterland, Common um, over we obviously have strong links with Dryhead and Norma Road, over Lena de Vaca, all the all the sort of different Irish language centres and, um, and our learners go to all the classes, Irish for and that's another one. And we've made really strong links, good relationships with the with the other um, Irish language organisations. When our learners went over, you know, and people would say, Well, you know, where do you do your Irish? And they would say, Oh, I do it over in Skanos on the Newton Orange Road with East Belfast Mission, the tourists. They then would invite people back and they would say, Oh, I I wouldn't go there. I'd be a bit scared. And they'd say, Oh, why is that? Come on over and get a cup of tea, you know? So it, I suppose it's just created lovely, very normal cross city. Um, communication and travel without having to do the formal, you know, ten Catholics, ten Protestants, and you know all yeah. that sort of stuff. Um, we before the the pandemic came, we actually opened a library, a London library, which will be open to the public, and um, and it's for Irish language books and also books of sort of Irish and Ulster Scots sort of culture and history and things. So you know, when when things return to normal, we want that to be used by people forever and we, we think it'll, it'll um, again create even more interest because people that are studying the language over in West Belfast can come over and borrow our books and so on
0: brilliant dear is there ever any kickback if you like particularly in around Ulster Scots you know it's like Irish isn't meant to be your language Linda you know you should be focusing more on the Ulster Scots things and what do you think about it? there nearly seems to have to be a balance. You know, a various language gets this, Ulster Scots gets that. What do you think of that?
4: Yeah, well, I'll give you a couple of examples. When I first started, um, I went to visit a particular group and I think they thought Ulster Scots was a stick they were going to beat me with. And the attitude was, why are you not teaching Ulster Scots? And I said, well we haven't been asked to you know people have asked us to teach Irish so we're responding to, to what was asked and obviously that was my interest but also at the beginning I, I always am very honest about this I have no interest in Ulster Scots so somebody from working class Protestant community and I find a, a lot of people are in the same boat in fact it was sold to me as something of a bit of a joke and it was Irish figures who pulled me up on that and said no you have to have respect for this mm. and I made it my business to go away and look at Ulster Scots and I found it quite fascinating But also what I realised was that loads of those words are all Gaelic and the constructions. So there's a big overlap between Scots and Ulster Scots and Irish and and, um, Gaelic. And I I find that fascinating and very interested in the etymology of language. But also at another occasion, um, I was invited to speak. Um, It was Newton Ours and um, and I I, I met the guy who was organising the talk and He said, "Okay, you know, whatever the time. And he said, well, now we've got you, Linda. We have to get somebody from Ulster Scots because, you know, I had to be watered down. I don't know, you know, if we talk about cardigans, don't forget about jumpers or, you know. And it just seemed so silly almost. So when I arrived that night to give the talk, I I didn't know who else was speaking. And it turned out to be a a very good friend of my husband's, Liam Logan. And Liam was was speaking on Ulster Scots. But we decided that night that any time him and I would speak on the same um sort of panel or whatever we would never do it separately we'd always do it together because we didn't want to be perceived as coming from polar opposites and i think unfortunately an audience looks and you know you have to bat for one side so it has to be either ulster scots or irish Mm. and liam and i you know both recognize that as i say the languages have borrowed into each other and that as people of Northern Ireland, you know, we draw on both things, you know, we we use Ulster Scots words, we use Irish words because that's that's the Hiberno-English that we speak. So we felt it was very important and as I say, now anytime we we, we share, like, we travel together, we go as friends and we're not coming from opposite sides.
0: Brilliant, it, it's great to see a language or the use of a language really building up that connection and resource that really short and sweet but thank you very much i, I find you, your, your article fascinating so and i hope others do as well thank you thank you so look folks that's us for today um and there's further exploration of the shared society on the the website on fingerpost.ie there's in heatherington he talks about uh shared society and the need for Ethical and shared processes when it comes to remembering and commemorations. And we also then have creative pieces from Anita Gracie, Fergal Barr, and Stan McWilliams. So that's it for this episode. Next episode is going to be on community relations and the arts, as I mentioned in my chat with Georgia there. And we have a guest editor next time round. We have Elaine Ford from the Playhouse. And I've had a wee sneak peek at the, the topics and the writers and stuff that she's trying to get involved looks really exciting it should be really really good so keep an eye out for that over the next couple of weeks so thanks to all the contributors in this issue especially the georgia colin lillian and linda for joining us today thanks as well to fiona corbin for her support with the webinar and of course the community relations council for their funding. all right folks so chat easy again great to see you all